Prado looking, throws it, alley, oh, he puts it down, he puts it down, it's over! Welcome in to the Just Basketball Show for Wednesday, October 4th. I am Chris Manning, that's Brendan Clean. If you haven't already, please follow and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, five stars only, and hit subscribe on the Just Basketball Fans YouTube channel. Want to tell you too about our friends at Homage, the ultra comfortable specialty apparel company with NBA and WNBA licenses that use vintage inspired designs to pay homage to the greatest stories, traditions, and figures card sports, music, and pop culture. Use our link below to make your purchase and support the Jimmy Basketball Show. Their stuff is really the most comfy thing you can buy. I have an Homage Cleveland Guardians hoodie on right now. If you're in MLB, and it's it is playoff season. You can go there as well. Um, Brennan, San Diego Padres are not in the playoffs. Well, I just pivot and claim the Diamondbacks all over again, like yeah. I never left. So that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, uh, homage, comfortable shirts. I think one of mine just got uh, stolen slash borrowed by my wife as a sleep shirt now because they are Jimmy very Butler comfortable. Shirt? So Jimmy Butler shirt. Uh, the Aces shirt is okay. it was was yeah. her selection. So I guess that will now be uh shared between the two of us, but maybe I'll get another one if they if they repeat, which we'll talk about in a moment. Yes, we're gonna today preview the WNBA Finals. We are going to talk some NBA Media Day notes, and we're going to give some of our favorite quotes we heard from our Media Day. We also have a Golden State Warriors preview, and we have a Brooklyn Nets preview that'll end the show. We have a guest, Lucas Kaplan, for the Nets preview, which is a very fun conversation we have banked before this. To start with Media Day notes, Brendan, I think the big story of the day as far as what did or did not happen is James Harden who we now know is going to show up to Colorado where the 76ers are beginning camp, but may not participate. He did not go to media day, uh, which kind of will get him out of maybe having to talk about this publicly. A lot of players had to talk about this. Jackson Frank wrote about this voice. Other people in the Philly media did as well. But this isn't a really weird spot for Philly. Uh, they, we knew this was coming. I don't think this is a surprise. But if you wanted to, to compare and contrast media days and optimism in the Eastern Conference, on one hand, you have the Milwaukee Bucks, who have Dame Lillard and Giannis Antetokounmpo trying Bratwurst for the first time. And you have James Harden just like not being there and Joel Embiid just kind of like... I you know I can't speak to the tenor of it, but I can't imagine he's particularly thrilled based on the tweet that he sent right before Cam opened up. Yeah, I think uh, it's obviously not ideal, but also this is the Philadelphia 76ers. This is like, this is nothing for them. Their fans, the front office, anybody involved, it's like, yep, this again. You know, it's just, uh, it is the Grand Theft Auto meme. It is, it is whatever you want to insert there as uh, as the way that it feels to just be in the middle of the drama again i think from the uh, ben simmons got asked by jake fisher at nets media day did you see this of, of he was like okay so harden it didn't show up at sixers media day last year you did the same thing can you walk me through like how do you actually spend the time of the day when you're not at media day and ben said no uh, no comment next question um, what do you think? Ben, but look, this ben is was doing some pottery. Like, what do you think he was up to? Pottery. I think he was fully grand. at his house because that's the difference, yeah. right? Now, now Harden is actually about to show up at at camp. It is from what it sounds like on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Uh, finally, you know, I think scared a little bit of of the fines that are going to come his way if he doesn't play basketball for this team. So it is weird. It is uncomfortable. It is predictable. But also. 
I don't know what changes anything here, I guess, is is where I go next because we've just been talking about this story for so long. I think James Harden at the end of the day is pretty unimportant in the grand scheme of the NBA in 2023. And so I think what the trade is and what the ripple effects are off of that matter way more than if anything about his fines or his performance at camp or whatever quotes he may or may not give. It kind of doesn't really matter at this point. Yeah, it matters to the 76ers' chance of being a good basketball team this year, but I, I don't I, I don't know what the trade is at this point. Like, you know how, like, underwhelming this would be for them if it ends up being like, hey, you get Malcolm Brogdon back in a three-team or something just silly like that, you know? But, like, that might be staring them in the face. Or can they repair this? Ron Reitzman had a really good piece I, at Fox. I loved Sports watching this. this. Sorry, I loved watching the Sixers okay. when they had a bunch of role players and Embiid. So I'm I'm down. Like I, I don't want Brogdon, but if it ends up being kind of one of those piecemeal trades, like that year that the first year that he should have or could have won the MVP, the the COVID 2020-21 season, I thought that sure. was like the most fun I ever had watching Joel Embiid. Honestly, so like give it to me. But is that a? I don't. I think the problem, Brendan, is I don't think that's enough for Embiid. I think Embiid is at this point. We all kind of know this that he might yeah. be the next big star who's like, "Hey, I want out," and then you, they, he, Philly wants to make this work and maximize this. Like they kind of have to make this work in some way beyond just, "Hey, we got a bunch of role guys, Joel. You do even more for us. You carry even a bigger burden for us, right?" And like you and I both, I think, know that we think Tyrese Maxey's solid, but I think there's a very clear limit on what he is based on his size and, and based on some of his limitations. We know what mm-hmm. Tobias Harris is. We like PJ Tucker. Like yeah. we know what this, the rest of these guys are, and they lost Niang. And, like, is Pep Bev, who as good as he was for Chicago last year, as important as he was for the Minnesota Timberwolves the year they made their little run with him on the roster? I, like, is he elevating you to be competitive with not just Boston and Milwaukee, but Cleveland no. and New York? Like, no, he's not. Like, this is a dire situation for Philly, even if I underst- I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm not positive. I said the wrong season, first of all. It was the 21-22 season after they, when Simmons was sitting out before they traded for Harden. That's the stretch that I'm talking about. You had guys like Tobias and and Seth Curry and others step up that year, and, and Embiid was 31 points per game on 50% shooting. Just unbelievable shot really well from three. One of the only seasons he's he's been able to do that. Four assists plus per game to uh to just three turnovers so like that that might have been the peak but yeah i mean i guess i just kind of see it as the situation for this particular season is is taking a hit no matter what happens here yes and so free agency is gonna have to be a slash you know whatever they can pull off if it is a trade next off season that's that's the the light at the end of the tunnel and it's up to anybody in philly to keep Embiid happy until then but i just don't see this panning out in a way that makes them a lot better or a lot worse given the circumstances so i guess i'm just rooting for uh, the entertainment value because i don't live in philadelphia and i don't have to live and die by this one yeah i i empathize with philly fans who might feel uh, really sick about this. All right, uh, a couple other news stories from the day. Devin Vincell got paid, got a ton of money, got the five-year rookie max from the, the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Brennan, I don't think a ton to add to this other than I think this is well-deserved. I think this is, even if you look at that and say this is projecting a little bit, I think, A, that's a lot of what rookie extensions are. It is projecting what these guys are going to be. I think, two, they're one of the few teams that is coming away from that 2020 draft class feeling like, hey, we got a guy 
there's only been like seven or it's like eight or nine extensions from that rookie class. That's that's a low number. It might even be less than that. It so far, like six or I mean, we have a yeah. month to go. Yeah, but if it doesn't happen by now, some of them, it's like, are you just like, like real? I mean, like a real commitment extension, not like, hey, like we're just going to give you like a. Well, we definitely know Jaden McDaniels is coming, and we were texting about that yes. one, so that'll be a big one. But you're right. I think it's. Jayden I mean, to me, with the sell. He's getting his money. Yeah, he's getting his dough. Br- I think Brink, the Brinks truck is backing up for Jaden McDaniels. Long Brink's drive, probably to the yeah. to the uh, Twin Cities up there, but they'll they'll get the truck up and and sign the deal. I think with Vassell, to me, the the question will just be: it deserves the money. A lot of it is speculative, speculative. But if you if you look last summer, you know the contracts we've talked a lot about last fall, really. Hero Barrett, and what is the third one? Pool. Mm-hmm. Like those guys didn't get maxes, and I think you would probably say Vassell compared to those three, like he's most similar to RJ Barrett, but he's already shown a lot more as a shooter, um, and so that's why he's getting this money. I just think the question will be, can he do some of the things that those players can that he hasn't shown yet? Which is, in the case of even a guy like RJ Barrett, like pretty significant on-ball defensive upside. I think Vassell is much better as a team defender right now. And then on the same, you know, flip side of the same coin, on-ball offense. Can he actually be a creator? Can he be a number one scorer on a great team? He doesn't have to have shown that yet because he's only three years into the league and was pretty young when he came up. But over the course of this contract, to make it seem like great value, he will have to do those things because even though, you know, that contract, the baby max, as Brian Windhorst calls it, isn't everything in the NBA anymore. It's a lot of money and it's it, a lot of money uh, on it. What does it call it? I think it's the I think fun, it's the fun max. max. Fun max. So it's like that team's still going to get expensive. That money still matters and, you know, you got to earn it. So those will be the things to watch for, I think, with him. Yeah, very excited about them. Very excited about the Spurs. Uh, other last bit of news. That is at least not surprising. You know, Donovan Mitchell said he's not going to sign an extension. We don't really need to get into that. I don't think unless you want to like troll me right now, Brendan. But uh, John Morant, I think the the biggest thing coming out of here is that he's going to be able to travel and practice with the team Hmm. while he serves his 25-game suspension. Zach Kleiman, the Grizzlies GM, said he thinks this is great for Ja, quote. And look, I I, I agree. I, you know, we didn't hear from Ja... You're, you got very, I think, standard quotes from a GM and a coach who are going to protect their guy. But I think if you're if if you in a world where we should be concerned, maybe about some of the behavior, want Ja to grow up, want Ja to be a part of this league for a long time because he's so exciting, he's so fun, he's so dynamic, he's just so freaking good. I think this is good. I think him being isolated away from the team would have been bad ultimately, tough. and I. It, it would have been tough, and I think just not particularly fair and empathetic. And two, this would make me honestly, like in a very slight way, and it's not really the point here, but if you're talking about how does he inc- incorporate himself back, if he's practicing with the team and traveling with them, theoretically, from the outside to me, that would think, okay, it'll probably want to be as hard to integrate him back in as it might have been if he hadn't been around them as much. Agreed. I think there will also be, you know, steps that we see taken behind the scenes. You know, I think there was some conversation on Twitter this week about that Nike has begun to have some events that he's involved in again. And the 
I say this with as little cynicism as I can, like the rehabilitation kind of project has begun here and it's up to him to, to check those boxes and take the steps along the way to, to be accepted by his teammates, by his front office, by his, you know, colleagues and confidants and, and obviously by fans. So, um, it's good. I, did you see the quote from Derek Rose, another difficult person to talk about, but I thought that that was pretty cool that he went out of his way to contact the people involved here as well as Tony Allen and be the mentor that all of us were talking about it seeming like there needed to be in Memphis. And Marcus Smart will probably be part of that that solution too, but I thought it was cool that Derek Rose like actively wanted that role. Yeah, I hadn't seen that quote, but I'm going to track that down after this and, and look at that. But I, th- I think Ja needs that. I think you do need veterans. I think you do need adults in the room. Like I, I think it's one of the things that NBA teams like I understand cynicism about like the Udonis Haslam thing for example like I kind of get it I think culture really does matter I think the people you have around you really does matter when you surround yourself with good people you surround yourself with people who are invested in you in in a positive way thing it's important I think for job that's clearly like just kind of what he needs you know I think that's pretty evident from everything we've kind of learned and read it's just like I think this you know, if this works out in the in the right way, I think some of the credit has to go from some of what is being allowed to go on here. I think hundred percent. And Rose, Rose seems like he's actually going to play too, which helps. Like, mm-hmm. I think it it can be there can be a limit to how much veteran influence can have when it's just somebody who's acting as like a pseudo assistant coach, pseudo trainer, uh, or whatever a front office member that just happens to be in the locker room, like the respect is harder to earn, I would imagine, for a person in that circumstance. So they paid Rose more than the minimum. Like, I would expect that he'll play. I don't know how their defense will look with both him and Luke Kennard on the court together and and whatever they cobble uh, together in that second unit. Maybe the playing won't happen for 82 games. Like, Derrick Rose doesn't feel like an impact player on a team trying to win a championship anymore. But at the very least, like, it was a legitimate investment on the Grizzlies' part and him him being invested, you know, personally, like, things are trending in the right direction. And I, I think smart too has to be mentioned there yeah i i think all of that feels right look and if jaw's on the road and he's out i'm not even trying to say this cynically but this is someone who if something if he's out and about in a way where he's enjoying himself let's say uh i think we're gonna like find out about it too i kind of just suspect that his days i think of Mm -hmm. being able to just maybe slip under and out of the radar probably a little bit over for the time being. Sure. As, as we pivot to the goofy quotes here, did you see Steven Adams speaking of the Grizzlies asking uh, which Korea this, this uh, that, free throw shooting? Trend. So Brendan, you, that's you on my this list. One? Oh, okay. absolutely. I did. This is right up my alley. Let's move. We're going to give each gifts three good media quotes. Was this on your list? Is this a shared one? No. Okay. So Stephen, Here, it's all I'll you. Explain it. Okay. So this this really made me laugh. I was I was having a great. I watched the I've watched the clip a lot, Brendan. So a reporter asked Stephen Adams. This is from Drew Hill, who covers the Grizzlies uh, for the Daily Memphian. Uh, reporter asked Stephen Adams about a Korean player who banks free throws. Would he try it? Adams says, I do want it intentionally sometimes. He was Korean. Adams says, Yeah, Korean. The reporter says. Adams says, North or South. Honestly, I love make I love a little awkward, uncomfortable humor. I love him just mm-hmm. getting to sleep in. I'm sorry, like and Stephen Adams is like the only one of the few players that I think could actually like do this, and it'd be like I'm not surprised someone said this. Like I'm trying to imagine like 
Imagine okay. if Devin Booker made this joke. You know what I mean? Like, so he was joking. Would, uh, there's no, okay. There's no. There no. This. Th- there's no way he's like generally like like I feel like this is just like screwing with you. I, just, I don't. That's well, you said you've watched the clip, and I haven't actually seen the video. Yeah. I just read it, so I you would know better than me. I wasn't thinking he's like an idiot who doesn't understand like this the history of that that particular region. I'm just saying like these guys answer a million questions. We've all seen clips where people just say stuff they're not paying attention. Whatever was it was it that or he he was. He was joking around because that actually makes it funnier I, if he was in being intentional. I read it as Stephen Adams is like being Stephen Adams and just like messing with people because that's what okay, he does. Great. He he I is he is the, Brennan. He is the king. If there was a pound for pound ranking of players who say goofy shit in interviews to get reactions and just like make sure people are listening to him, it's Stephen Adams. He's the king of this. Yeah, this is what he, he does. Probably, he probably is. I should I should have assumed. Um, all right, I have one here. Okay. I I went like less goofy, so I feel like I'm maybe putting a damper, but um, you know, it's fine. Draymond Green about Chris Paul. This one is kind of funny, so it's a good one to start with. He said, I've started to get get to know Chris better. If you've ever watched Chris compete, he's kind of an asshole. You might say the same thing about me, and that's okay a good one i'm just really fascinated we're going to talk about the warriors and preview their season in this episode but i'm just fascinated by that entire dynamic and they didn't get drew holiday so we know for sure chris paul will be a member of this team there's all sorts of basketball reasons it's interesting there's all sorts of off-court personality reasons that it's interesting but i just kind of buy that it's going to work out like that's one part of Golden State season that I'm I'm honestly I'm intrigued to watch play out, but I don't have nerves about it in the way that I think a lot of people seem to. I agree, and there's a this is a tease for that preview. I have Chris Paul in one of our categories. Guy we're going to be talking about by the end of the year, up and comer, Chris Paul. Yeah, yeah, he's going to finally figure it out. You know, finally figure it yeah. out. Yeah. All right. My first one. Uh, this is this is a guy from your neck of the woods, Brendan, or at least was DeAndre Ayton. He said, "I bring dominance. My name is Dominating. Just making bad mm-hmm. puns in his new city. I DeAndre. You, this is like a three out of ten, but I respect that you went for something here. That, well, so speaking of Draymond Green, did you see that he he chimed in on Instagram about this? This quotable, no, but I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm. I'm not surprised that he did. Just hysterically laughing at it, yeah. Um, which is what it deserves. But what I think I'm. Uh, I'm too close to this one because it You're feels too close like to the sun. Yeah, yeah. It feels like because there <laughs> has been so much. I got you. Uh, that there's been so much attention on Aiton because of the trade that people were more you know tuned into what he said on monday than they would have normally uh but this guy has this word tattooed on himself so this is this is part of his brand this is like since he was in college he's been using this like this was not a rebrand for the blazers to try to like prove everyone wrong and whatever i've seen a lot of people you know laughing and and joking around about it and just kind of surprised me because i'm like yeah he's been saying this like all the time for years now like half a decade just, this it, guy's been using the using the dominating it's just it's just very corny it's super corny of course yeah 
Just work, my guy. You, you, you gotta. We gotta work. We gotta work on this a little bit. You're just um, upset that your name doesn't fit into like a really demonstrative adjective like that. No, um, my name is so. My name is basically just like people for. I will be 175. I will be dead when I'm like 90 years old. Someone's gonna be like, "Are you related to the quarterbacks?" And I'll be like, "No," but thank you. Like that's that that's that's about as fun as I get. Yeah, and so, you know, you don't know what it's like to be able to throw your name out as something to describe how intense you are as a, as a person and a man and an athlete. But that's you, just you on being, you. You being, you, you being like it's as part of his brand is very funny because that's like if I have, a, I have a tattoo that I'm planning on getting, that is like the most me thing I possibly could get. And uh, is it also dominating just, on your back or uh, chest? I don't remember you know, where like he has the, it. Well, you know the No Regrets tat from the, the movie mm. Where the Millers? I'm going to get that, but it's going to say dominating like right up here over here. That's really, that's perfect. I'm glad you're inspired. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. Uh, next one. Yeah. This one is uh, also somewhat funny, but also somewhat serious. Kawhi Leonard. The, okay. This this was my number four. This was my number four. I'm glad okay. I have this. this so this uh, I'm not a guy that's sitting down doing load management. If the league is trying to mock what I did with the Raptors, they should stop. I was injured that whole year. Another one where uh, I haven't actually watched the clip, so I, I suppose there's a chance that there's a different context to it, but also it's Kawhi, so I can imagine it was incredibly deadpan regardless of what yes. the tone was. There was no tone. I think that this is another one that I actually sympathize, sympathize with Kawhi. I was actually thinking about it, and I feel the same way like we were talking about in the Wolves preview we did about how like it's just become like the shorthand thing to discuss with them that the Gobert trade was a complete mistake and it just becomes really lazy. I think that people stopped paying attention to anything related to Kawhi Leonard's actual health or career trajectory after he won the title in 2019 or something. I don't even know when, but it's like the guy has had about as bad of a record of injuries to his lower body as you could possibly have as an athlete. Mm -hmm. And somehow him becoming the poster child of load management happened along the way. But I agree with him that I would not describe what he does as load management anymore, even though the Clippers called it that at one point. It's like straight up like keeping body together management keeping person from not being able to walk again management. Like that's where we're at with Kawhi Leonard. And it's like a, a testament to him that he can even play and, and be an athlete at the level that he is. I think the other part of this quote, that was the funnier part of this was someone asked him, um, Kawhi, would you have thoughts on the NBA's policy? And he said, what are they? What is the policy? <laughs> Yo, he's like, can you tell me the policy? <laughs> Did your Cavs uh, guys get asked about the rule? Because it was it was thrown at a lot of the Suns players, but I guess that's probably because like Duran is a spokesman of the league type of guy. But I don't know if it was common at other media days. No, you know it didn't come up in. I think it came up once or twice. Um, Mitchell's extension was kind of the the crux of a lot of things to a point where like it, you guys got a little bit annoyed having to answer questions about it. Yeah. Durant got asked, and I thought it actually he's he's kind of the perfect person to ask about it, right? Because 
similar to Kawhi, like he he actually has had injuries and he's a player who under the new 65 game rule for the awards, that specific part of it, not the all-star has to play during X, Y, and Z games thing that just came out, but the, um, the awards part. Durant wouldn't have won or been named to all NBA teams, wouldn't have been eligible for these awards, whatever. So like that, that does suck. And I think somebody like Kawhi is a perfect example, but uh, what's your last one? My last one. Uh, well, can I give you two honorable mentions from Cleveland first? Sure. Okay, Evan Mobley. There's a the, one of the big things for media day when Cleveland was Evan Mobley getting talking about his diet and like that he invested in a weight room at his uh, at his house. Not the one I think his house like in, in L.A. where he's from. Number one, someone asked him what the square footage was, and he was like, "I have no idea." I'm like. Okay. And then they were talking about his diet and he someone's like, oh, do you have to cut anything out of his diet? And he was like, nah, mostly add. And he said it was just like such like a, like I'm 22 and I can eat whatever the fuck I want energy. That was just like the only time he just seemed like bemused by question the entire day. Then later, Tristan Thompson gets asked about Damian Lillard. And he asked about the trade and he, uh, in the middle of his response, he said, you should ask the guys in Miami. They'll give you a better answer. Fair. And he just, and he just, no notes. Segway, segue on. I was like, Tristan, well, well done. Um, so Greg Popovich is my number one. Okay. I didn't see this at all. I didn't see any quotes from Pop. Okay. So he was getting asked about the starting lineup and, uh, you know, who's going to start. And he said, I've had no discussions with anyone. But if Manu Ginobili can come off the bench, anybody can, and I don't want to hear it. Just elite get-off-my-lawn energy from Greg Popovich, and I love it. Love it. I uh, I like it. Pop needs some new... Uh, like, you saw the Rolling Stones are releasing a new album, Chris. Yeah, you know what? Uh, they, Brendan, somehow they got Sidney Sweeney to do a video with them, and I'm just like, what? They got a Lady Gaga feature, yeah. There's all sorts of young energy going on. I guess Lady Gaga's not the, they, not as young as Sydney I mean, Sweeney. They, but. Did a, they did a video with Paul Mescal last, like, two years ago, too, and it's just like, what's going mm-hmm. on here? I understand they're the Rolling Stones, but what's going on? Yeah, so Pop needs, some, Pop needs a new album. Like, I feel like the Hall of Fame speech that he gave should be the ceremonial end of all of that era. Stories, little catchphrases anything it's over flush it down the toilet Vic doesn't want to hear about Manu Ginobili we need we need new material from pop that, that's my take on that one uh, my last one Giannis to Chris Haynes so this wasn't at the at the podium but this was uh, this was in the one-on-one that they did for NBA TV first of all did you know Giannis is like Chris Haynes's like cousin-in-law <laughs> no but <laughs> that explains I don't want to say what I was going to say, but I'll I'll, te- I'll text you, you what say I was it. Say. That's that's nah. why he got him on the record in the in the Bleacher Report okay. story. That's what I was going to say, that's, and I was like, I oh, mean, okay. of course it is. Which you yeah, and I were so pretty. Talked, we, you you and I were reveling in the fact that like you he talked in a way that is very rare now for athletes in that moment. It is incredible. Well, so he did in this. Yeah, he did in this too. So he said. How can you work out together when we're in the same league and we're going against one another? This was about athlete NBA players who in the summer spend time doing, you know, open runs and, and you know, being at the gym and doing this type of thing. He said, how can you work out together when we're in the same league and going against one another? The reason I'm not winning a championship is you. How the, how the hell 
can I work out with you? And he just went on this entire rant about how the, the lack of competitive energy that comes when these guys are just like, yeah, let's all fly out to LA and just like work out and then pretend like we hate each other when, you know, the ball gets tipped. It was very similar to pop. It was very old man energy. Get off my lawn stuff from Giannis, who is not even 30 years old, but I kind of agree with it. Like I, I get that some of this stuff is how the seeds are planted for eventual team ups and everything. And I'm not saying there's no place for it at all. Like, I don't think everybody needs to want to punch each other for sports to be fun, but I do think that there's a a certain element of it when it's like, is this just pro wrestling where it's all just like made up for two hours and then we go back to, to being real? Like there should be a little bit of fire. And I like that Giannis has kind of made a point of just being, even if it's performative a little bit on his side too, like just talk it up, you know, put your money where your mouth is like, make it, make it more fun, make it more fiery. That's what this stuff's all about. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. All right. Uh, Brendan, I think we should go to our dumb NBA finals preview now because we then we can stack our previews back to back to move on to the maybe finals liberty aces start sunday at 3 p.m amid the WNBA being very weird on twitter and teasing um expansion but mm-hmm. just being really cryptic and weird about it which feels very on brand uh very quick the last WNBA note i want to just hit before we move on to the full preview leah boston unanimous rookie of the year well-deserved, zero questions that this was deserved. She's not going to play overseas, and this is good. I think this is the kind of thing where you Sabrina hasn't played overseas. I think Asia did one year and has not since. Um, she's not – I can't imagine there's a world where Kaylin Clark or Paige Beckers or Angel Reese or any of them are going to play overseas. It doesn't seem like that's going to be in their future. This is really good good if the league especially the league at some point is going to get to expand the season then that that's maybe that's maybe five years ten years down the line something like that but i think it's a really good thing for the league if these expand it how because they already players. this year is the longest season that they've had i, I well I'll, I'll let's start with longer playoff series expand yeah, it that well way. sure yeah um yeah i think this is good i um it's been pretty it's been a continuation, right? Like Asia has never played overseas. A lot of the older players since the latest collective bargaining agreement have not. Um, you might be right about Sabrina. I had it in my head that she never did either. Um, so I thought, I thought Asia did. I thought Asia did one time like in China or something like that. I don't believe so. I'm going to look this up. I'm, if I'm wrong, I apologize. Um, either way, I think that's the most one of the most concrete legacies of the 2020 collective bargaining agreement even though there are limitations i would say was, she did play right. okay yeah, so for the regardless sh- uh for the red wolves and the women's chinese basketball association for the 2018-19 offseason cool so yeah i think that's one of the most concrete things you can point to is that the threshold the, the baseline of salaries and off-court opportunities and things like that has been lifted to the point where a lot of these people don't have to do it. And, you know, I think the ultimate goal is that the 12th player on the bench also doesn't have to do that, but it's a good step that at least the the biggest faces, the biggest voices, the people that represent the league are here all year because then they can also be marketing the league and making appearances and doing advertisements and all the other types of things that also help people find out about 
who they are, what the league's all about, what the game is, so that when the games do come, when the league season is longer, when everything is bigger, it's not as much of a pivot to, oh, like, wow, now everybody's here again, and what are we going to do with all their time? It's, it's not going to have to be that, because it is going to be gradual, and we're seeing that with like what you said, uh, this exact thing. Yes. All right, let's move on to full finals preview. We're going to break down a bunch of different categories here. Brendan, let's start with the key matchup. Um, I, mm-hmm. you, you and our notes have the same one I do, so I'll let you 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 key this off. It's going to be about the front courts. I think that's pretty obvious when you have two MVP, top three MVP finishers, two of the best, probably the two best players in the league, in Brianna Stewart for New York and Asia Wilson for the Las Vegas Aces, matching up against one another quite a bit. And I think if you take it a step further, what we saw throughout the playoffs, uh, sorry, throughout the regular season when these teams faced off, the Liberty were three and two in the five games that these teams played. What we saw was how the Aces, especially after Candace Parker got hurt, attempted to cobble together a rotation, a scheme on both ends that could match the size of New York while also maintaining their own identity and being effective on both sides of the court. And I don't think that will change in these finals. How many minutes can they get away playing Kia Stokes? How uh, you know close can they be on the glass and at the free throw line and some of those categories? And then, of course, who plays better between Asia Wilson and Brianna Stewart? So I think everything's going to come down to the four and five spots in this series. And uh, that's probably going to decide who wins. I think that's right and pre- I, I think the John Cole Jones thing is a fun thing to zero in on here because she was in the finals last year with the Sun and they didn't really push the aces to Asia Wilson like particularly hard John Cole Jones and then in these the last couple of matches between these teams has been very impactful she was just the, the, the key player for them to close out against the Sun and get to this series I think Stewie at the five is obviously going to be a really big deal. Those lineups and how she defends Asia and the block is going to be a big deal. Those looks through, I think, some real trouble at Asia Wilson and clearly frustrated her based on how fired up she was after some of those games. Remember when she was in Brooklyn and after they lost and was like, I don't need to be validated or whatever. She said she was clearly annoyed by, by the MVP, some of the stuff going on there. I think you're staring at this and thinking, okay, do do this is also like maybe a Dolson series at times. You just see her in spurts just to at least have another bot out there, give some fouls, eat some innings. I think that's that's a if you had to give the advantage to one team in in their bigs, would you give it to? I I think I might lean the Liberty, just because it has I trust to be the Liberty. The, I mean, that's like that yeah. was the whole story of the regular season was that that particular matchup favored the Liberty. I mean, how could you pick otherwise? The the, the Aces have one, and you just listed so, three who the Liberty have that are playable. Right, and even if you say like, okay, Stewie's just kind of a bass. Like I would say, let's pull Stewie out of that for a second, just because she kind of does a little bit of everything. If it's John Quill and Dolson, and Asia's the only playable big on the Aces, it still feels yeah. a little bit like a, a Liberty advantage, which is going to be very fun. And Asia, look, Asia, I think has to be monster in the series. If they, if the series gets out of hand for the Aces, if some of the stuff the Liberty did that really struggled, that made Asia, I think, get frustrated and struggle a little bit. If it works again. This series tilts so much in the favor um, of the Liberty in a in a very very drastic way, like in a hurry. I think if it pops that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the point you made about the finals last year is a is an interesting 
maybe a place to jump off. It kind of leads me to my X factor, but um, I don't know if you had more to say there. I just think no. John Cole Jones did play well in, in the finals last year to, to a degree, right? So she owned the offensive glass. She had her, her totals in that. Um, hold on. Let me get, let me get it right. But I believe that she completely owned the glass in a way. And really what, the difference was is Chelsea Gray was the finals MVP last year. Mm-hmm. Her ability, and she's not my X factor, but the point is that her ability to get to that mid-range, attack John Quill Jones in the drop defense that she played, be just a neutralizer of all the length and physicality that Connecticut throws at you uh, went a really long way. And so that's going to be how the aces try to do the same more. So you can't fight fire with fire. They just don't have the bodies, as you just said. So my X factor is more Kelsey Plum actually in this case, because I think her not playing well, her not feeling and looking like herself last year or this year throughout the regular season in these matchups was a pretty big reason why I think that they weren't able to be effective because you know, Jackie Young did more on the ball this year. I still don't think that she's going to be your kind of every possession point guard necessarily. Chelsea Gray, I kind of just expect it to come as often as as it needs to, but also not somebody because of her. She's not going to take pull-up threes. She's not really going to like drive to the free throw, you know, drive to the basket, get to the free throw line. Like she is really, you know, floaters, mid-range pull-ups, jumpers, um, passing out of that and getting it downhill and transition, that type of stuff is more her game. I think the one player who can consistently break down a defense, create advantages, create space, create openings for herself and her teammates is Plum. And so if she can do that, you see their ball movement start to get better. You see that really be a rising tide for everybody else on the roster. And a lot of the size concerns and all the things we picked apart when these teams faced off it just becomes less of an issue because they do have the offensive firepower to beat anybody. It's just about how do you unlock that and who do you use to try to unlock that and what are the things you try to pick at. And so that leads me to the last reason I think she's an X factor, which is that Sabrina Ionescu is going to guard her most of the time. And I think you and I were both pretty confused by the fact that it didn't feel like Vegas was consistently ready to attack her or yeah, her or Courtney Vandersloot throughout the regular season. It just felt like they left, they left so much meat on the bone there. Did it feel more? I, I maybe this is just I'm tilted by the game I saw in person, but I felt like they were more eager to attack Sabrina than than Vandersloot. Yeah, well, I think I think Sabrina's just a not good defender. Yeah, and I think Vandersloot, at least as a point of attack defender, can stay with her her matchup and has. A higher IQ defensively and is able to use her hands and create steals. Like there's at least some ways that you see Vandersloot impact the game and she at least rotates and, and executes the scheme a little bit better. Whereas I think you just have the disadvantage from Sabrina's standpoint of like physically she's at a disadvantage and I just don't think she reads the game enough to make impact plays. So she's really just kind of a big negative no matter how you slice it. So if I'm them, like I thought they got great stuff using Chelsea Gray as a screener toward the end of the regular season Mm -hmm. matchups. I think those are ways you can try to neutralize. You know, if Alicia Clark makes a few more jumpers in those matchups, we might be talking about a different result on the whole in those five games. So putting the ball in Plum's hands, whether that's initiating or on the second side 
or in transition and just letting her threateningness, that's not a word, but I'm using it as one, offensively pose problems for, for, for New York and, and put them into a panic situation as a defense, like that feels like kind of the the key to unlock a lot that they weren't able to when they lost to them uh, during the regular season. My ex, I think that's a great X factor. That was, that was, she was on my short list. I actually thought, I, I gained myself maybe out of talking more about John Cole Jones because I think she might be the really simple answer here. Mm-hmm. Because I just think the, the Liberty are not winning the series unless John Quill Jones is giving you like an A level series unless she's well. On so let's just let's just follow up on yeah. that because yeah. I think I think you and I have a little bit of a different view of the Liberty defense because I think like you said the five out lineups when Stewie's at the five I think what Asia struggled with is when they went big and there was help in addition to being st- stymied by her one-on-one matchup. Like, I think Stewie did a good job guarding her one-on-one as a face-up player, post player, whatever. I think the issue was how many bodies and hands were between her and the basket when she got the ball and just having no, to make right. such quick decisions and make such tough shots. So that's another place where John Quell is going to be huge. She has to be that second layer of defense. And how do they limit her from being able to be that, I think, is a, is a question on Vegas' side. No, I think that's right. I think when I'm saying it, I'm thinking it's – the better way to say it would have been the Liberty have this ability to throw different looks. They're not tied to one mm-hmm. look where it's, hey, John Quell, sure. you're defending Asia. Great. We can put Stu on you. We can put Dolson on you. We can throw traps to you. We can we can get a little... We're, you're, I think you're going to see Asia probably get whacked a little bit in the post on some doubles. Yeah. Like, I think that's going to happen, you know? And that that's... Mm-hmm. The way they can do it with it, I think it's the different body types. I think it's the different mm-hmm. kinds of ways you can do things. I think the variation sure. does just come from the fact to me at least somewhat, that A, you have Stewie, but then you have John Quell in the back end. And if you do want to play Stewie at the five, maybe you don't want to do it for a whole quarter. And I, I mean, based on the minutes we've seen in the playoffs so far, like that's not going to happen. They might just be on the court the whole time. Mm-hmm. It's possible. These teams are both yeah. really top heavy. I think and how much the Liberty are going to play their bench, which is something you've pointed out throughout the semifinals, right? Do they, do they go back to Kayla Thornton? Do they go back to Maureen Johannes? So, Mourinho Hannes is my X factor for this because if you go back to the games, not every game, but the games where they have played Vegas, mm-hmm. she has had moments where I think it has really popped. I think the game that they won, um, I think this was the Commissioner's Cup game. She had 15, was 5 of 7 from 3 in that game. She's had games this year where she can just let it fly. And then she's barely played in the playoff. She's, here's her minutes totals in five playoff games so far. Four minutes, 56 seconds, four minutes and 13 seconds, 13 minutes and 34 seconds. That was the 15-point loss to the Sun. Uh, two minutes, 59 seconds, and then 16 minutes and 32. And then there's, I think, a, there's a game missing here, I believe. She so, probably was a DNP. She was a DNP in that last one. So, yeah. Uh, there we go. So, here, here's my thought with her. I understand there are some defensive concerns. I think that is part of who she is and I think if you're saying well we have Vandersloot we have we have Sabrina can we put another target on the floor for Jackie Young for Kelsey Plum for Chelsea Gray to maybe get in a in a PNR and do that I just think a I think those except for Chelsea Gray and a little bit Jack Young, I don't think those guards are big enough to really bully her in the way that I think causes the problems with Johannes' defense. Right? Like, I think Johannes' defensive problem is when she can just get kind of backed down and beat up by a bigger guard. And that's not exactly how these Aces guards play, right? Like, that's not how Kelsey Plum 
play. She's tough. She's strong. But she is she going to bully you into a tough midi? Like, no, that's not how she's going to play. Maybe you're not going to ride her, Johannes very long if she's not shooting well. If she comes out and misses her first through three, she's probably getting pulled. Or she has a blow the defense this time, she's probably getting pulled. But I think in a series with the margins as close as this, the, the potential upside of rolling her out there and saying, we need you to cook a little bit and relieve some pressure mm-hmm. off of Stewie, relieve some pressure off of Sabrina and Vandersloot, and, and give another shooter that isn't Laney. I think there's a lot of value in her if she can have a role in this series. I, I really think there's a path for her to, to have an impact in the series in a way she just wasn't going to have against the Sun. Sure, I think it's a good one. I think you look at the Aces and the fact that they don't have any scoring off their bench. They have Alicia Clark, who can make some threes and, and will be a, a vital part. She was the sixth player of the year this season in the league, but... She's there for for defensive versatility, spacing the floor, providing some physicality and toughness. She's not that. And aside from her, like she's probably the only real bench player we're going to have to worry about or talk about for the Aces this series. Like that that fatigue factor and depth factor is really going to come into play for them. So, just from that standpoint alone, if Johannes can average eight to ten points a game in this series, that's eight to ten points the Aces aren't going to have an answer for. And so, yeah, how do they mix and match her in lineups? Can she survive on the court? Are the aces ready to pounce when she's out there? I think all that's going to go a long way because we've talked about Dolson. Now we've talked about Johannes. If those two can't make an impact, I don't think Niara Sabali is ready. Nope. You're suddenly talking about New York not having much of a bench either. So one of them has to because uh, it is something that they should be able to wield and Kayla Thornton being the last one. So we'll see. Um, you have a, a question in here of what's at stake. I'm assuming we're talking about besides a championship. Oh, I didn't see well, you put a note in our thing to skip it. Yeah, but it is worth gonna briefly the, talking about yeah. it if you want to, because I'm curious what you meant. So when I when I thought about this, is I think when we go to like an NBA Finals, I think so much mm-hmm. part of the media discussion is often what's at stake for this person's legacy, what's at mm-hmm. stake for for this team, this person. I think just considering Brendan that like these are two super teams that. Asia and yeah. Brianna Stewart are going to go down to like inevitably when their careers end and they're still a long ways from being done. These this is these are two players that are going to be on the Pantheon, barring like injuries yeah. or something. Like these are players headed for the greatest among the greatest that have ever played women's basketball. Like we are headed mm-hmm. there with both of them. It's undeniable. So to see them get to go against each other in the first year of the Liberty for an Aces team that I think absolutely is going to have to evolve as it goes forward just considering the lack of depth. I think this is just a, a big moment for both teams to kind of stake their claim for the for this era. There's more challengers yeah. coming. I mean, I, I think, you know, like the wings are coming. Like I think other teams are going to be on the upswing and make this maybe not a two-team league in the future. But right now, these are the powers. These are the these are the world powers. And seeing them get to go head-to-head and who gets the, 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 the first series win between both of them and what could really be a multi-year series matchup, that's a big deal. And for the, for the Aces in particular, they win. They're the first team in like 20 years to win back-to-back titles. You want to put yourself yeah. in history, you do this, you stamp it, you're, you're there forever. And that, that's, that's as simple as you can get a stakes. Yeah, I think the Ace of Sticks is exactly what you just said. It's it's only happened one time ever besides this. Well, it's happened twice, I think, but both of them were 20 years ago in the WNBA for a champion to repeat. And that's that 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 describes everything you need to know about their side. I think for the Liberty, uh, I, I go to one, it would be their first championship. And this is one of the original WNBA franchises. But 
it's really hard and really rare in any sport to change teams, be the best player on multiple different organizations and win a championship. And that's what we would be talking about with Brianna Stewart. Like I've said it before, I'm sure on this show, but I believe it. She's one of the greatest winners in the history of basketball. When you go back to UConn, two championships for the Seattle Storm, doing it on a, another franchise with a different context in year one would be massive. And we don't know. Courtney Vandersloot's under contract next year, but what is she going to be, you know, for the rest of her career? John Quell Jones is a free agent. We expect her to come back, but, you know, they're also, because of how tenuous building this team was, already sort of on a a year-by-year type of situation as well. So you never know if you're going to be back here. I think even though it's year one for the Liberty versus kind of, you know, year five or six, but even year two for, for Vegas, like there is a lot of pressure, I think, on New York to get this done too. That said, my prediction is aces and five. I think Aces and Five is probably the the rational pick, Brendan, but I'm going to stick with my Liberty prediction that I've held for a while now. I'm going to go Liberty and Five. And if I were to pick an MVP, I think it's John Cole Jones as a series MVP. Okay. Well, I'll I'll go with Asia Wilson because that's not very... uh... Chelsea Gray won it last time, but I think if it's... Given the depth problems at center, I think if the Aces are going to win it, it's going to be Asia. They are minus 210 on BetMGM. The Liberty are plus 170. That feels probably right, considering home court advantage and everything else. But yeah, I mean, I really just went down to like, they're going to be at home in game five. So I, I'll just pick them. Like, I'm not, I'm not expecting a blowout. I think all these games are going to be incredibly close and incredibly fun. And we got what we all wanted. Yeah, you got some good odds over there. Um, <laughs> Thinking about with, a, a Liberty, little Liberty bet there? Well, you can bet like this. The, I, like five games is at, it's plus 225 at BetMGM. Mm. Mm. That, I, like that, that. I, just, I, I just think this series is going five. Yeah, agreed. I mean, last year went four and it was Connecticut. And like you said, it wasn't like a crazy close <laughs> series. The WNBA is just weird, right? It's like when you have yeah. five games, it's hard to win three in a row. So... It's inevitably going to go long because long is not very long. Yeah, uh, I would be really tempted if I were going to do this. I'm on a little bit of a, I'm positive myself, kind of controlling myself <laughs> these days. But uh, Aces to win game one and Liberty win the series of plus 500. There you go. I might like that. That's 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 tempting. That's troubling for me. All right. Uh, Golden State Warriors season preview. Brennan, a team that, just speaking of stakes... Has a lot mm-hmm. on the line every single time they start a new season right now. Uh, considering the age of Steph Curry, the age of Draymond Green, the age of Klay Thompson. They, we are closer to the end than the beginning with this group. They made a big move to get Chris Paul in the offseason. I think hopefully they'll have Andrew Wiggins for this entire season. And I'm going to tell you, I teased this before. My answer for a most important player is Chris Paul. You could go... I think you could go with... a. Just say Curry needs to play at an MVP level, and that could be your answer. That would be boring. You could go Clay and say they need him to, to be a really good version of himself. I think that's boring. Draymond has to hold the defense together. I think you could say that's boring. I think it's Chris Paul because he is the he is the thing they cashed whatever Jordan Poole is in for. That's the aggressive offseason move they made. And I don't exactly know how easy it's going to be to spin out of it if it doesn't work or it's clear it doesn't work like by the trade deadline or something. I think they need him to contribute. I think they need him to be able to fit in these different lineups that Steve Kerr is saying they're going to have clay guard power forwards this year. Um, I think there's a lot on Chris Paul. Even if he doesn't start, I think they need him to be a positive, healthy member of this basketball team. And I think emphasis on the word healthy is, is, is part of that. Okay, so two questions. Do you think he should start? And no. 
No. Okay, me neither. And do you think he can impact this team in a positive way? Because obviously, yes. no, zero he question. has to. Zero question. Okay, zero question, so how? he can. I think, number one, I think this, I think a, a ball handler like this to do different stuff with Curry and release some of the burden on Curry in itself is, has value. I think, to, to quote Draymond, someone who can be kind of an asshole and be a crotchety defender can only help that team in a certain way. I think being another guy who's really motivated, like, look, if you're going to bring in a veteran like this and someone who needs motivation to win a title, who I, I you know this better than me having covered him up close, I guarantee you Chris Paul's coming in this year like his eyes set on winning and is going to buy into whatever you need to need him to do. And I just think that I think with where you this team is at and with what Poole couldn't do, I understand like this isn't the exact same guy. You're not going to have some of the shooting magic, I think, that maybe the the best of Poole had with, with, with Chris at this age. But I think just the ball handling, I think the toughness, I think that the, some of the shot making, I think the ability to maybe just like some of the middies, I think some of the, the differentiation of the offense can be a good little wrinkle for this team. You don't, I don't expect that has him to be have a lot of that. But I think the moments where Curry's off the floor and Chris is on it, and there's going to be some games where Chris has like three middies in the span of like six minutes, and it stems the tide of a competitive game. I think that's going to be a big deal. I think he can be a real stabilizing force in a way that this team hasn't had, it feels like, in a long time. Yeah, to me, it feels like people's analysis of them is, of him on their team, I should say, is through the wrong lens completely. I think that people are talking about him obviously because he was traded for Jordan Poole as in the context of like, what can he do versus what Poole gave them? Can he fill that hole? Can he be X, Y, and Z as a scorer, as a shooter, like you were just saying? To me, he's a, he's a replacement for Andre Godal and Sean Livingston to go back like eight years. Mm-hmm. Like he's going to give them now. what those guys gave them mostly Iguodala I would say right just a a secondary ball mover smart cog in their offensive machine who despite their significant difference in size like can at least be smart and and execute on defense enough to play big or small with you and just not make mistakes make his teammates better be a good presence in the locker room all that stuff I think he's Chris Paul is those guys much more than he's supposed to be Jordan Poole here. You could even say he's like a replacement for Leandro Barbosa on those original teams. They've always liked that secondary offense and their team for a while just had Kevin Durant and Steph Curry both to provide that so they didn't need need it as much. And then last two two years ago, they kind of just got lucky. I mean, like we can they obviously were awesome, but like, you know, their team was far from perfect. They just won the title in a season when they, you didn't need to be perfect to win the title. So I, I like the Chris Paul answer. I also think he'll make some of their young, their young guys better. I think he'll make some of their older vets better, like Dario Saric or Gary Payton. Like I think he can just kind of raise the floor of some of the non-Steph lineups quite a bit, even though he won't score. So I like that answer. My, my pick was Andrew Wiggins, though. Yeah, uh, which I probably will not be a surprise to you. You know, I talked all, all last year about Andrew Wiggins. Um, to me, he was the second best player on the Warriors the year that they won the championship, at least in the postseason. I think, you know, we've talked about it a lot, but like what he was as a rebounder, as a defender, and as a shooter for that team was absolutely huge. He is really the only guy you could look at 
with upside to create offense for himself more than what they got last year because you know even if you feel good about some of their other additions including Chris Paul like that's not really what they're going to do whereas Wiggins can and in a year where they look like they're going to be playing small quite a bit his defense and rebounding and physicality is going to be huge like you talk about clay guarding fours it's like you know Wiggins is going to be doing that all the time uh you know guarding Jason Tatum guarding Kevin Durant guarding Devin Booker guarding Jamal Murray like all the time he's going to have to be dealing with these types of matchups in addition to needing to be probably the second creator offensively over the course of a season they did not have him last year and I think they cannot be their best unless they get a peak Wiggins season this year I think that's exactly right I, I think Wiggins is absolutely essential Wiggins is someone they are not winning the title unless Andrew Wiggins is around all year and a really good version of himself. I, there's just no way around it. They don't have anybody else. Like, Draymond is great, but Draymond at the apex of what he is for Golden State is not someone who has to go defend LeBron or go defend Durant or, or whatever. They need Wiggins to do that. And they need Wiggins to make a bunch of threes. And they probably, Brendan, I would think, maybe maybe it's time you see a, just a little more on with the ball in his hand from Wiggins just to, to see what can happen. Um I think this is a good segue, though, because I want to say that my most important, my, the player we're going to talk about at the end of the year, I'm, I'm going to stake my claim on Jonathan Kuminga Island a little bit here. Okay. I think, I think they, I don't know if this is going to be a good or bad thing for him, but I think it's, we're going to find out if he's ever going to actually play. Chris Paul is saying all the nice things about him at media day. I don't know if you saw any of that. That's one of the things that was noteworthy. Played 20 minutes a game last year, 37% from three, 52% from the field, 3.4 boards, 1.9 assists, 9.9 points per game. I don't think Steve Kerr fully trusts him based on what we've seen. He has not played a ton of minutes, uh, was not part of the playoff rotation, like barely at all. I think this is just someone whose frame, whose potential skill set they need to just let go. And it's, I think, time to find out if, if he can be someone that can can be part of this, this version of this team. Because I think they just need another wing. I think last year showed us that. And this is someone who's not even 21 yet. If you told me that year three, he finally just something clicks a little bit more and he elevates, would not be surprised at all. This is, this is a, a time for a Jonathan Kuminga ascension in some way. Yeah, it seems like what's going to need to click is his mentality more than anything else yeah um you listen to like warriors reporters and like they they are very open about the fact that that coaching staff the the organization from top to bottom just doesn't doesn't believe that his his kind of approach is where it needs to be right now and like i'm not saying that like i know it but i'm just listening to the people who who are plugged in and it seems like that's the number one thing holding him back because like you said you you with a lot of guys like this you would you would look at it and say oh they can't shoot yet but he can shoot. It just seems like he wants to be Jason Tatum. He wants to be Carmelo Anthony. He wants to be Kevin Durant. And I think, you know, can they afford another experiment where they intentionally inject him into the rotation? And like he played plenty last year overall, but can they survive another thing where they commit to him whole whole scale wholesale like they did with James Wiseman last year without it derailing their season. I would say it's probably not going to be as damaging because he's a better player than James Wiseman and it, doesn't yeah, play as important that, of a yeah. position. 
but I think that they're they're approaching this season with a lot more urgency. And so I think anybody sort of being a loose part of that will be tolerated less this year, even than it has been in the past. And so I, I wonder, like, how many minutes does Kaminga play per game the first month of the year? Because I think that'll tell us a lot. Uh, mine was Moses Moody. I feel like those are really the only two directions to go with it, in my opinion, unless you're just really huge on Lester Quinones. Um, I think... I just kind of trust Moody more, and I think that's mostly just me reading into who I think Steve Kerr trusts more. Uh, I think you and I watched Moses Moody's first summer league game together, Chris, uh, in Las Vegas, and Mm -hmm. he's always just been somebody who I think physically and athletically is a little bit more intense and forceful than you would guess. Like, he's not just stand in the corner and shoot threes and then kind of play good team defense. You know, he, he really is a physical guy and I think has some, some pop to his game in a way that doesn't get talked about, you know, got to the rim, has gotten to the rim more than you would guess for a a wing in, in the early part of his career and played good defense on pretty solid matchups. Like he guarded LeBron, I believe at times in this, in the, in the playoff series. So he seems like the guy that I would bet does play does help them get to some of their smaller lineups without sacrificing defensive intensity and physicality and probably i would think from all the stuff we've talked about plays more than kaminga but i definitely agree with you that the ceiling hit of kaminga would make them a a pretty different team if this is the year that his mentality just shifts and he starts playing more like green and looney then like a lot more is possible for them because they suddenly feel like not so small of a team if he's playing with the level of force that he can I mean, just think about him and if, if, I mean, number one, I think the Moody Calls is the only other one. You could go, unless you're like a Brandon Pozdominski guy or a Kionis guy or whatever, like, you don't really have a lot of other. We got to do a lesson like, on that name before you throw it out on the pot again. I, 0% chance. If there's like a G there. in there, like a J. You, got, you say it like a J, it's Pajemski. Pajemski? I, don't ask me that's, how, but that's, that's, what, that's what it is. I just, I'm looking at the ESPN I don't know that language. Right is he Polish? Sure. Okay. It's it's Kuminga or it's Moody. And like Moody is probably mm-hmm. the safer bet. I guess I'm just feeling frisky. I Moody just feels like someone that Steve Kerr is going to like actually like trust to play like 25 minutes. Like, you know, like he t- played fewer minutes per game last year than Kuminga did. Mm-hmm. Which is the, the real answer. The real think, answer just but by the playoffs, the like answer, you said, one was in the rotation, one was not. Mm. Well, is the real answer just going to be Gary Payton the seconds playing like thirty-five minutes a game, and we're just like what? Well, except he is also thirty-five years old, so he he does not get this honorary. Uh, he's he's like thirty, so he's not uh, yeah, he's not a breakout candidate there, here. He is. Uh, he's thirty. Yeah. Yeah. He's. He is not 35. That's a big difference. That would be... You said 35 minutes, so I was playing off of you. I wasn't literally describing his exact age. Yes, I know he's not 35. His dad's like 50, so if he was 35, that'd be a little scary. Um, Yeah. All right, so best lineup. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'll throw with Moody is DiVincenzo's not here anymore, and so that's a big part of why I just expect him to to have to play. They're going to miss him. They're going to miss him a lot. So... Last year, the best lineup for this team was Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, and Kevon Looney, mm-hmm. which is not a surprise. I would say one level deeper than that, all their best lineups were big. So this was not a season where Draymond at the five lineups really like statistically popped in a major way. 
when Looney was off the floor, the rebounding turnovers and fouling just were out of control bad. Some of that's related to Looney. Some of that's related the turnover part, especially to the fact that Poole played a lot when, when Looney was not on the court. And yeah. so, you know, I think it's hard, you know, without being like just cruel to describe how bad Jordan Poole was last year. Like he was a genuine suck of a offensive weapon. Like he made the team demonstrably worse when he was on the court, period. So even not having him, I think helps, but it's a big question of how they get to those small ball lineups this year and who fills some of those gaps to do it, which is what we've talked about a lot with all of our guys already. So with that all said, who's your best lineup this year? I'm going to go with what was their best lineup in the playoffs last year, uh, which feels like a little bit of a cop-out, and it's going to discount Chris Paul, but I think just the track record of this lineup is a little bit deeper. It's Steph Curry, Steph Curry, ever heard of him? Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, Kevon Looney. Kevon Looney and Draymond together is just such a pain in the ass for these teams to have mm-hmm. to deal with as a front court. They can both do a bunch of different things. They're both incredibly intelligent defenders. Those lineups score it, like pretty well, they did pretty well in the playoffs, and the, the defensive rating in the playoffs of that lineup it was their most used lineup um, last year. Ninety-eight point eight defensive rating in the playoffs—that is astoundingly good. And there's no reason to think that cannot just carry over and continue. That is to me the lineup, even with the addition of Chris Paul. Yeah, I went the same way, and it is what they had last year. So not not the most uh, hot take here, but I would say. On the Looney point, the reason that I think he's he's in our lineups is I think he's just gotten harder to take off the court. Now, if they had Kevin Durant yeah. or Pete Andre Iguodala, then like of course we're talking about something different. But the way that he's I think raised his IQ over time, where even if he's less mobile than even he was at his peak, which was already reduced because of the injuries that he suffered and everything else, for a guy who has to stay around the paint on both ends and doesn't really score and doesn't really block shots a ton. He's about as good as you could possibly ask for with all those limitations. And so I just think you have to really believe in somebody hitting in a huge way from Moody, Kaminga, or I, let me ask you this. Is there any version? What's the pathway to the Chris Paul small ball lineup with with him in place of Looney hitting in a way that that becomes the best one? What what it's would have to happen? On, it, it's de- I think it's dependent on two things. Number one, it's dependent on Clay Thompson being able to defend up in a way that I'm just a little bit skeptical of. If Clay Thompson's going to have to like defend forwards, particularly against teams like the Lakers or even Durant on the Suns, I think that's a real problem for Clay. And if that doesn't work, you're just back to playing the two bigs. And I th- I, th- I think mm-hmm. the Clay thing has to pop. And I think secondly, I think they have to, the, the chemistry between Curry and Clay. Or excuse me, Curry and Chris Paul has to just be like unreal. And I think also the diversification. And I think on top of that, if Chris Paul is finding his spots in those lineups and the and the offensive numbers are just so juiced, and that that contrast yeah. that he provides juices the offense, I think it, it's that and Clay on defense. I think those two things hit. That's the that's the only path to me on paper as of right now, without having sure. seen it yet, obviously. Yeah, I think I agree. That that and Chris Paul has to take open threes, which will not happen. We don't have to even ask the question. But, <laughs> but can, um, I just, can I just play devil's advocate on that for one second? Mm-hmm. If there's ever a team where he's not the lead guy and he's just not, 
where I kind of think I'm okay with Chris Paul sometimes like doing the Chris Paul thing and not taking every single open three. I think it might be this one because if he drives and he collapses defenses and he gets Clay or Wiggins or Curry threes, I kind of I'll take that process. Like that might be okay. I think. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, I say that, and then he had pass a, open like a wide open one in the playoffs, and it's gonna like end in a turnover, and we're gonna be like, well, here we are, here we go again. They had the they had a bottom half offense in the playoffs, tenth tenth of sixteen. So uh, they need they need him to do something, and I think most of the time that's gonna be to take the open shots that are there to yeah, get better on the simple, offense. It, but we'll it, see. It, it's it's the simplest path. All right, best All right case. so uh, w- one other thing on the lineup note. I will just throw yeah. out this one from a fun standpoint. Paul Moody, Peyton Kaminga, Sharich, second unit is going to be really fun. Just five out, run, well, as much as Chris Paul will run, and make the young guys better. And I think Sharich is just a piece that I want to shout out because I think he'll be really, really good in this system. And he looked really good by the end of the season with Oklahoma City last year. I think he's now like 18 months out from the uh, ACL that he tore. And he should really help this team on a minimum, which will go a long way for them because they did not have size. They miss guys like Bielitsa a lot, uh, even though we didn't talk about it. So, all right, best case, I have a championship. Yeah, that's the best case. Curry plays at an MVP level, is healthy the whole year. Chris Paul clicks, and this team is a contender for real by the end of the year. What do you think? What do you think what, their uh, their What do you think their seeding ceiling is in the regular season? Because this isn't I mean, a team with that how should, much like, Chase wins, right? I would think so. I mean. Yeah, you don't want to be in the play-in for sure, which they flirted with last year. But, I mean, this is a team who is 8th in offense and 12th in defense. If they have – we'll talk about this with the over-under, but, you know, they got 93 combined games from Stephen Wiggins. So, I just think by nature they might win more games. But even even without that, they should be chasing it. I think that the, a top four seed is definitely within reach. And they have so many veterans that their their kind of floor is, I think, a little higher. Um, what about them versus the Lakers? Because we just did the Lakers preview on Monday. Them or, or, or LA for more likely to win a championship this year? I, th- I think they're like, their odds difference is like 400 difference. Like I think the Warriors are better favored to win the title. I think they're like plus Warriors at plus 16 Lakers at plus 12. I think last time I looked, okay. I have to double check that. Um, I'm going to go Lakers just because I think this, I trust the depth a little bit more. I trust like Reeves and Rui and everyone they've added that, that I think I go there in a way. Cause I just like, mm-hmm. we need to see how this Chris Paul thing works and we need to see what Moody or Kuminga is going to be able to provide. Yeah, I think to boil it down as much as you can, like I think Davis is better than Green or, or Looney, and I think that Reeves is better than Clay. You know, like I just think At the defensive point, and yes. yeah. the defensive and offensive ceilings are just higher for the Lakers. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean them. Worst case for yeah, the Warriors, uh, though, I have first round exit. Same. I think it's. I mean, they went to Game Seven last round. year. I mean, look, and they played a really a Kings team that, again, we should tip our cap to them. They did a great job of holding up in that series and making that competitive, but they did go to seven. And it wasn't a lock they were ever going to win that series. Um, title odds, by the way, Lakers plus 13, Warriors plus 17. 
So while we're talking about the worst case, do you think going into this year, because obviously the other thing lingering is Clay Thompson's injury. Do you look at this season, or not injury, sorry, well, recovering from it, but the contract, the next contract, do you think that whatever happens this year outside of aggravating that injury would have any impact on their desire to re-sign Clay? Because I kind of think as long as nothing catastrophic happens, it's just going to be about what the number is. I don't actually think like the context of the season and oh we were going to pay you but we only won 44 games instead of 54 so never mind like I don't really I think that will be a talking point this year but I kind of don't think it should be. All of the posturing they've done publicly about this to mm-hmm. me would indicate that like you are correct, right? That mm-hmm. this is this is not something where they've been like well, we'll have to wait and see. They've kind of just been like we just need to find the right number. It's it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, and for how much. Yeah. It's I I think that the way they are signaling how this is going to go. I think particularly with the Draymond extension and trading Jordan Poole, I think it's just a matter of figuring out the the details. And maybe there's like some protection for the team in there that we're not expecting. But I think we're in a very clear place as far as like he's just going to be a warrior until he decides he doesn't want to yeah. play and be a basketball anymore. Win total line is 47 and a half. I have the over. I do too. I feel a little bit uneasy about that. Same. Just because of the age, just because of maybe they just take it easy at times. I could see that they're winning like 46 and being pretty happy with it, but I, I would take the over as well. So they were statistically a 47-win team last year. They got a little unlucky. I think they won 44 total. We mentioned they were 8th yep. in offense and 12th in defense. So they were, I might have that flipped either way. They were top, near top 10 in both. Let me just walk through how many bad things happened for them last year. They committed to James Wiseman, that experiment, the first month of the year. Went terribly. He was bad. They benched him, traded him, gone. The guy they traded him for, Gary Payton II, had a secret injury that the Portland Trailblazers hid from them. So they didn't get to have him on the court until basically the playoffs. Dante DiVincenzo, overall fairly solid signing, but really inconsistent regular season. Did not shoot the ball super well. Horrible year from Jordan Poole. Only 56 games from Steph Curry, which maybe you have to count on in 2023-24. But nevertheless, that's a pretty low-end outcome. Uh, health-wise, and then only 37 from Andrew Wiggins. So I just think that they solidified the veteran depth here in a way that, that kind of protects them from the floor coming out. And when you combine that with the fact that I think their best players, who I think are Curry and Wiggins and obviously Draymond too, play more and probably play better in the case of Wiggins, like you're telling me I only have to get one more win out of that and all those things are going to trend in the right direction? I was nervous about it too. And the more I looked at it, I'm like, I just think the vast majority of outcomes lead, lead them to an over here. The la- the other thing I would add to that is that they were 11 and 30 on the road last year. Here are the well, two yeah, teams that whole in the thing. West. The, the two whole teams road in the thing. West. I, I, I went back and read a bunch of stories about this, Brendan, and like tried to figure it out. And it still just doesn't make any sense to me. Like at all. It's just a, a, a weird thing that they were 33 and eight at home and 11 and 30 on the road. Just bizarre. You were saying two uh, teams what? Two teams had a worst road record. Okay. Can you guess who they are? And the, the West. Pistons? Of the West. I'm not going well, okay. to. Well, yes, the Pistons would be the other one. So three teams overall, but two of them were in the West. Who are the West teams? Spurs and Rockets. I mean, I'm just going with the two Spurs worst teams. 8-33 yeah. yeah. and 33 on the road for Houston and San Antonio, as well as the Pistons. And the, the Warriors had the next worst road record. Doesn't make any sense. No. So 
if that bounces back, like, there's just so many indicators that would tell you they're gonna they're gonna be closer to a 50 win team, I think, this season. So I, I would, you know, if I were betting, probably feel pretty comfortable like, on that one, actually. Yeah, like if they switch spots in the conference with the Kings, and that's like the outcome of the season, wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Do those teams just like swap to some degree? Yeah, the Kings preview. I'm looking forward to. That's that's going to be a fascinating one. I have no idea what to expect. Uh, I have been started my prep for that, Brendan, and I'm very optimistic in some ways. And I'm also like, how much of this is just going to be exactly the same? And they're going to get a little bit lucky in like was deer and fire. Like, yeah, there's just a lot going on there in Northern California. I also do keep there seeing sure the Mike is. Brown clip of him like yelling, running up, turn on the fucking jets. I'm like, I love Mike Brown so much. God bless him. Uh, all right, that's it for going through Warriors preview. A team very much in the title conversation coming up next to end the pod. A long one for you guys. This one, Lucas Kaplan on the Brooklyn Nets. Let's dive into that. Now we're going to preview the Brooklyn Nets with Lucas Kaplan. You can find his words at Nets Daily and SB Nation site and Swish Theory. Lucas, thanks so much for coming in and, and talking about the Brooklyn Nets with us, a team that I think I'm fascinated to see how we all answer these questions because it is a team that obviously went through a big change last year. I think it's postured publicly that they're happier about these changes, right? That they're happy to have gone back to something more resembling, let's say, the Kenny Atkinson era than the Kevin Durant-Kyrie era. But we'll see where that gets them. I, let's start with most important player. Lucas, who's your most important player in the 2023-24 Brooklyn Nets? Well, first, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, appreciate it. And secondly, I would say the most important player you could go a couple different ways. You could go Mikhail Bridges, talking about his offensive growth. He's going to have a lot of ball handling responsibilities. How does that look? But I think it has to be Ben Simmons. The organization has talked about he's has no restrictions for training camp. They expect him to be a big part of this team. And I understand the skepticism. I understand the optimism where, okay, I mean, he's playing five on five. He's actually healthy. I mean, there has to be some sort of tangible improvement from him. But... He is the most important player in part because I think the range of outcomes for him is so wide. There is a world I could see him being a productive player and contributing to wins and being a player that they need. Obviously, there's a world where I don't think it would shock any of us if he's not able to do that at all. So Ben Simmons has to be the most important player. Um, kind of a boring answer, but I don't really see a world in which he's not. So, Chris, uh, Brennan, I, I think yeah, I, you and I both have Mikhail, right? We have. Yeah, I'm we sorry. both have I, Mikhail. Like, Lucas, all respect. I just don't think Ben Simmons has been a good basketball player in like two years. And I don't think assuming he's going to matter. The, like, I saw the Jock Vaughn quotes. I understand this guy was once an all NBA guy. It has just been so long. And I don't think banking on him in any way is a tenable solution for Brooklyn. I don't think it makes any sense. I get that maybe he pops and it'd be added value, all that stuff. I think it has to be Mikhail. Brennan is the Mikhail fiend of the two of us but that guy's awesome he's their best chance they could having a real star player on this team and we only saw a little glimpse of his offensive package post the Durant trade I just think that guy is a real thing you can build with and lord knows if Ben Simmons is any of that right now I think Ben Simmons is added value if he turns out if not okay whatever you're paying him you can maybe aggregate him in a trade he's going to be off your roster in a year like whatever I think Mikhail actually matters in a way that Ben Simmons doesn't right now so 
Uh, I want to. The thing I want to come back to with Mikhail is you said we just are starting to see uh, the beginnings of, okay, of what his okay. offensive package can be. I'm not positive that's actually the case. Uh, I'm not sure if okay. we're seeing the beginning of, of some sort of uh, really big blossoming. Um, but to get back to Ben, just to tie the bow on on Lucas's point. Um, you said the range of outcomes, Lucas. What, and Chris and I had a conversation when Ben did that interview with Mark Spears kind of like starting the the refresh of whatever this 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 season healthy and back at it was going to look like for him and we debated what a realistic role would even look like based on the limitations we have always known about his game coming back from the injury and obviously within the context of this roster so you said that you could obviously see and i i I agree with you even though chris is uh is out um that there could be a version of him that's a, a competent role player. What role do you think he can play? How can he help this team if he is at least like an average version of himself this year? So the reason I'll go with Ben, because Chris does make a good point. Like Mikhail is, if you, how you define the word important, Mikhail's the best offense player on this team. He's probably the best player. Um, the reason I didn't pick him is because I think I tend to agree with Brendan's point a little more that we, I don't think this is the beginning of an offensive uh, path for Mikhail where he blossoms into something totally unexpected. I think he's a great player, but we kind of know what his role in a high-functioning offense is going to be. I don't really want to see a ton of primary ball handling opportunities for him, like an initiator role. I think the Nets were forced into that last year, and it didn't have great results. Um, But I think if Ben is able to not be an all-star, not be an all-NBA player, but he's actually able to handle the ball because right now Spencer Dinwiddie and I guess Dennis Smith Jr. are the only traditional ball handler initiators on this team. That's not going to be good enough for even a league average offense. If Ben can just give you connective synergy to actually be able to handle the ball and make reads and help Mikhail get downhill and help Cam Johnson get downhill. If he's actually looking to score a little bit and not just passively dribbling around the perimeter, looking for someone to take the ball like a hot potato, it'll add a dimension to this offense that they desperately need, where when they need ball handling, it's not just, okay, Spencer Dinwiddie, high pick and roll, Spencer Dinwiddie, ISO. I like Dinwiddie. He's a good player, but it was just too much on his plate last year. And you don't want to give Mikhail so many ball handling opportunities because he's more of a play finisher, I think, than a play initiator. And I don't mean that as a slight to him. I mean, he averaged 27 points after the deadline last year. But if Ben can do something, it'll make the offense run a lot more smoothly, even if he's not an all-star. So to give some numbers on on the Mikhail side, I think it was kind of a blind spot to not add just some sort of cheap point guard for this team i mean lonnie walker i suppose can can maybe dribble the ball uh, and and initiate but that's not really your answer dennis smith as you mentioned is was brought in more for his offense or his defense i think we would all agree so that that just feels kind of strange to leave that hole because there's a lot of relatively cheap options there but uh mikhail so 52 percent effective field goal percentage on 220 pull-up jumpers after the all-star break last year versus 45 percent effective field goal on those pull-ups pre-all-star break usage went up from 20 to 30 percent um to me those 
that feels fluky. Not the usage. That that was kind of by necessity, but the the jumper efficiency. I think the part of his game that that I do think is pretty sustainable and you you hit on it when you said getting downhill, right? Like he was at 12 drives per game uh with the nets versus like just under eight for phoenix and he drew a bunch of fouls by doing that um so Mm -hmm. that feels like something where if you put him in a secondary spot up role he doesn't have to get downhill just by blowing past his guy in the pick and roll or in isolation but he can attack a broken down defense that was the ingredient that never really seemed to come for him with the suns and and for whatever reason it did this the the second half of this past season with brooklyn so i love i love the idea of somebody allowing him to do that because i think his ultimate destiny is probably a second or third best player on on a good team i mean i think that's that's pretty obvious so you know put him in put him in the situations that those types of guys function in rather than kind of propping him up as a number one when there's nothing wrong with that but there's only a few guys that that fill that and i think at 27 we kind of know that's not going to be what he is um do we want to move to the guy we're going to be talking about, Chris? Because I think you and I might have the same answer here, knowing us. Well, the last thing I will just say, Mikhail, is I don't. When I say I think we might, there's something offensive coming. I agree with you guys that I don't think he's suddenly going to become like a top like lead option. But I, I think just seeing if there's a little more juice on the creator bone to see where that gets you and what that tells you. I think is kind of is noteworthy, right? Like I think that is a noteworthy thing if you're trying to figure out how you're building here and what other pieces you might get Brennan okay let's should we say let's who is yours Brennan who is yours uh mine's Nick Claxton okay same look at us yeah yep. us. here we go all three of us all three of us love Nick Claxton love love, so, love Nick Claxton I will ask you guys um either of you whatever what I guess specifically about his game it is a contract year gonna be a free agent yeah gonna make some money if his year is anything like yeah. last year is there any you know specific part of his game, whatever that you're looking for this year? Or I guess I'll leave the floor to you guys on that. So what I'm interested in, I'll go on either end of the floor. On defense, to me, it's how does he look within this roster context, and especially without Kevin Durant uh, as as secondary rim protector, and to a lesser degree without you know some of the rebounding that Durant provides, but the rebounding wasn't massively different uh, over the course of the season with all the changes. I think that's just going to be a deficiency for a team like this kind of no matter what, but more so that what does he look like when he's having to be a switch defender, but also the only rim protector on the team, you know, Um, last year, the defensive rating for this team, according to, uh, playbyplaystats.com was 111 with both guys on the court, but no lower than 114 with any of the other variations of that. Um, But at the other side of it, you did have some of the just like big ball jumbo wing heavy lineups perform pretty well on the whole too. So it's not like he doesn't have a track record of succeeding regardless, but I think the best context for him is to, to be next to more traditional size. Like I think we, we get really infatuated when teams are able to play quote unquote small ball when they have big guys one through three, mm-hmm. but we kind of ignore the need for the big guys at the four and five. Um, and and it's like, at the end of the day, Cam Johnson as your four, it's not ideal, no matter how you slice it. Like you're going to, you're going to be lo- losing something uh, without a, a real paint protector at that spot. And then offensively, 
I, I would be more interested to hear uh, your side, Lucas, because I, I'm I don't necessarily know what the next leap is for him offensively necessarily. I think he flashed a lot in the way of touch and finishing and, you know, ball handling. I think all that stuff is coming along nicely from what he showed at Georgia. The free throw shooting is an obvious thing. I kind of just expect that to get to a passable point eventually because it was in college. Um, But I don't expect this dude to be, you know, a point forward anytime soon or tossing up threes or whatever. So what do you think on the offensive end is kind of the next frontier for him to explore? Yeah, uh, I'm glad you asked that. On the offensive end, I mean, his career, there was a real fork in the road after a shoulder repair surgery after his second season. I mean, you look at Georgia, you look in his early G League days, he, listen, he wasn't light, he wasn't shooting 40% from three, but he could really shoot and the free throws weren't an issue. And he's talked about how he's had to rework his shot and it has not gotten back to the pre-surgery level. And I agree with you. I don't expect him to be DeMontis Sabonis. I don't expect him to be a stretch five or anywhere in between, but he led the league in field goal percentage last year, and it was not just catch, lob, dunk. There was a lot of touch with both hands. So I'm thinking I would like to see the Nets, who are probably going to need some creation, lean into a bit more fake handoffs, some more hub actions. And there was a game last year against the Kings where the Kings were switching a lot, and Clax had end up on an island against Terrence Davis, and they gave him the ball. And it was one dribble to a hook that Dev- Davis could not contest, and he got some looks. And then the next games, you know, the Nets go away from that. They don't feed him the ball. And I get that they're not going to feed him the ball in the post all the time. But I think just exploring a little bit more of, hey, this guy can get from the arc to the rim in one dribble and finish with either hand. Let's maybe give him a little bit more freedom to explore that. Either way, I don't expect him to be a super offensive plus. You know, he's going to be a defense first guy, and his defense is really good. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I wouldn't be surprised going into a contract year, whatever. He wants to show a little bit more of that action. And I think there are some points for the Nets to pick up using him a little bit more as a hub because, I mean, it's just, it is a really rare blend of length, athleticism, and touch. Chris, what do you think this guy gets paid next year? A lot of money, like lots of money, just bags and bags of money. I mean, if Jared Allen got I mean, 20 yeah. and Jakob Pertl got like, what did Jakob Pertl get a year? 20 something, like 20 plus, like 18, 20. something like that. Mm-hmm. He's going to, he should get at least 20 and probably like 25. I I fell yeah. in love with him when I saw him in person. Uh, he They were playing the Cavs, I'm in Cleveland, Lucas, and he, he just straight up wrecked Jared Allen like for much of this game maybe like a sign of things to come for Jared Allen against centers who just like like playing physical um ominous for Cleveland I guess but he was so physical and so tough and so just rugged for a guy that is not like when you see him in person you see that he is strong but he doesn't look huge right like he's not he's kind of a slender tough big guy he's part of this like run of centers we have now that are strong but aren't exactly bulky right they're kind of lean but he Mm -hmm. plays like he's like 20 30 pounds heavier than he is and there's something about that you can't teach there's something about that that comes in value for a team that just needs maybe some junk points here there maybe needs someone to kind of be setting structure with screening and, and with some other actions i I just love what he can do, and I love the way he plays despite him not being this behemoth. Like, he plays like he thinks he's the size of Joel Embiid. Yeah, and the one thing I would say I took away from the introductory presser with Jacques Vaughn and Sean Marks, 
this team was 15th in defensive rating after the deadline last year. And if you're an optimist, you say league average roster thrown together on the fly. Like we can get that up with a real training camp. And Vaughn talked about, I want to mix in more uh, defensive coverages, diversify our defensive portfolio in a sense. And part of that is focused on the defensive rebounding. Maybe instead of switching everything, I want to get our communication to a point where we can keep Nick Claxton down on the block more often. And maybe that's because they don't have secondary rim protection like they did in Kevin Durant and they want to improve the rebounding. So my hope is that the Nets throw more different types of defensive coverages out there and that helps insulate Claxton so he's around more often to help with rebounding and to help with rim protection because, I mean, they're still going to switch a lot and he's going to be on the perimeter, but the fact that this guy can protect the rim and switch at a high level, it's it's not very common and it's amazing to watch him uh, pull off. I was really impressed with how well they executed some of their super aggressive defense against Embiid and against the Sixers in that mm-hmm. first round series, Des- mm-hmm. despite, like you said, being kind of cobbled together. And um, obviously you have a lot of veterans and high IQ guys overall and, and good defenders at maybe various points in their careers, but you know, still to, to execute it that way and have Vaughn coach it up in, in that short of a time to, to execute that game plan was was pretty impressive. And it wasn't always the same thing. You know, they they changed up how they were doubling or how they were rotating around that and everything. And I thought, you know, obviously playoff series didn't go the way they wanted, but that particular aspect of it was pretty nice. I think this is a team that if they can turn turnovers into offense, that's going to help them, you know, improve their offense too. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if we saw them really get pretty junky and, and take advantage of their length and athleticism on that end. Um, Want to go to lineup, Chris? Yeah, I think that's a good transition lineup because my lineup, I'll go, I can go first on this, is a little bit sure. junky. It's a little bit, let's just put the length, the long guys on the floor and put Nick Claxton at the five and let's figure it out. I'm going Dinwiddie at the one. I think you kind of have to. Just some of the shot making. I think just he is a little bit bigger for that spot, which is nice. I think it's Bridges. I think it's DFS, which is, I think, the one I had the most trouble with there because he was not particularly good with Brooklyn at the end of last year, but has the size, has the switchability, has the toughness. Maybe the the shooting slump was something of a blip. Then I think you go Cam Johnson at the four. Again, you're going to play a little stretched out. You're going to be a little smaller, but it's another big wing. You're kind of you're loaded two through four as far as size goes. And then it's Claxton at the five. He's going to be the anchor of what you do. I think with him and Bridges on the floor together, you have competent defensive lineups just based on those two guys. And I think it's about just hoping the offense works otherwise. I, you know, is there an argument you could, if, if Simmons is good, maybe slip him in there for DFS. Maybe you put an, another one of the wings out there. Maybe someone else pops. But I think for me, mm-hmm. it's, it's got to be for right now on paper, Dinwiddie Bridges, DFS, Cam Johnson, Nick Claxton. Yeah, that's so last. Oh, I'm sorry. Go sorry. Ahead. Just to, just to illustrate what Chris was saying there about Finney Smith. I, I think, I like him more than O'Neal in, in theory too, but last year the best lineup post-All-Star break was that five-man unit, but with Royce O'Neal in place of Finney Smith. But it sounds like you agree with Chris Lucas. Um, I think that's going to be the lineup. And I think if, I mean, they're invested in Ben. You know, I'm not going to try to come on here and spray the Kool-Aid everywhere, but they are. They're expecting something. So I think if they get Ben to a reasonable level, they might slot him in for DFS. In an ideal world, that juices the ball handling a little bit. Um, But to your point about Royce Royce O'Neal, they really like him, and he was really good for them last year. 
He shot a career high from three on a career high volume. He spaced three, four feet behind the line. And he does give you more, okay, attack a closeout, make an extra pass than Dorian Finney-Smith. He's a passable ball handler connector, whereas Dorian, you really don't want him handling the ball very much. You do not want him to see him dribble the ball. Dorian might be a better defender. So those are the three, I guess, contenders for that fifth starting spot. Dinwiddie, the former Suns, Claxton, I think that's pretty locked in. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I agree with you guys. I think, you know, it might just depend if Dorian's really not shooting and Ben doesn't look good, then you slot Royce in and, you know, so on and so forth. But the lineup, I think, is fairly etched in stone. I, I would also yeah, I, say I think Royce, Royce O'Neal is someone that the moment another team calls you and is like, can we give you a first-round pick for him? You should send him out and say, thank you for your service and take the asset and profit yeah. from that. Yeah. Well, so mean, that's a good... No, I Go just say you heard that a lot this summer and you honestly heard it at the deadline last uh, year after the KD trade and a lot of people around the league were like, really? They didn't... Because there were... I think it was confirmed that there was a first for him and it was confirmed that there was a first... And then another protected first for Dorian. So people are a little bit confused about why the Nets didn't take that opportunity. But to me, that showed me like they're confident if they have to offload these guys, there's going to be deals there. So trade candidates, they were that all summer. I think if you get closer to the deadline and they're not super integral to the team or it's not going well, you, you might see that to Chris's point. Yeah, Chris is just a Cavs homer, so he wants O'Neal. That's where that's coming no, from, in I, case, you, no, in case right, you missed it. What, the, the, the Miami Heat just give a first-round pick and then start recruiting Donovan. I think that's the path. Someone's just got to go. do some elite forward-thinking tampering with Donovan Mitchell mm-hmm. to trade for. And we just want... We just want peak more more peak windy content. I think is is also you know the inevitable domino off of that. I think uh, to return to the lineup thing for a moment, then we can go to best and worst case because I think the trades is uh, kind of funnels us right there. But uh, the other thing about if Simmons were to be in that lineup is I think he has the potential like to be the second best like on ball, if not maybe the best on ball wing defender on this team. And so it's like you know Finney Smith and O'Neal like. I think I like the functional strength that Dorian has. That's kind of why I like him more. O'Neal's one of those guys where it's like, he's not going to screw up and he is long and has, you know, the wherewithal to, to kind of keep up and contest, but he's not really going to like break up plays. So I think Simmons can, and, and that would be another plus there in addition to the ball handling. But I'll just go with worst case to start because I think that's where more where I think about the trade. So I had for worst case scenario for the Nets this year that they can't stay competitive despite the depth of talent and the season just becomes kind of about trades and prop prepping for next off season. That, yep. you know, that's kind of where I see it. What do you got, Lucas? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, one thing about this roster is they're one bad injury away from like a month where they go, I think maybe like three and 11, three and 12, something like that. Like Mikhail can't get hurt. Dinwiddie can't really get hurt. And Claxton can't really get hurt. They were lucky with injuries, I think, after the deadline last year. Uh, but who knows? So I think that would play into the worst case scenario. And then, like you said, they're not that competitive. It becomes about trades immediately. Ben doesn't look good. He's not adding anything. All of a sudden, if you want to be competitive next year, it's like he's an expiring. We probably have to dump him. Um, in terms of the on-court stuff, I think if none of those – secondary tertiary ball handling options work out then it's too much on mikhail's plate the offense suffers and then one i guess sneaky underrated story of the post deadline team last year is that mikhail's defense really suffered 
as a result of having all of that creation. Like he just wasn't the same guy on defense, which is fair. I mean, he was asked a lot. So there's a lot of ways, I guess, that this could go wrong, starting with injury and secondary, the offense just really not getting past that like 20 to 25 range. What do you got, Chris? Best case, um, I think Mikhail Surgeon, like that whatever we saw, like some of it is enough real. And then they push for like a top six seed and they also maybe like squeeze some assets out. But I think if you thread that line, you're in a good spot. I think worst case, it's exactly what Lucas said. It's lots of good players. Maybe some of them slip. Simmons doesn't pop. And that's just like a hangs over you in a weird way. There is like just some energy there that I do think it has an impact to affect things, even if you don't want it to. It's just it's such a weird situation. I don't know what like the right comparison for it is and i just we don't know what the negativity could could stem from that um and i i think it's just lots of good no one's great and they just get kind of stuck at the bottom of the plane and then, then this feels like a real transition year. i think that this is in some ways a transition year anyway but i think you want to feel like the transition year isn't growing sideways it's like actually taking like something of a step ahead in what you're doing and i think there's there is a possibility here that you do feel kind of stuck in, in in place even if you think you're transitioning I yeah think threading I- the needle is is how i put it i think um or how i thought about it but i honestly like i i like the players i like a lot of the upside of what these guys can be on a great team i just don't know if there are enough of the different types of pieces to form a really good team right now right now and so lucas i I said the best case is that they host a play, and I, I, I don't necessarily see the pathway to them getting a top six seed. Like, even if a lot of these things go right, I guess if Ben really were to just look like Philly Ben again, like, okay, but, you know, what's the percent chance that that level of, of recovery for him hits? Probably pretty low. So uh, even a middling productive Ben and all this other stuff, I just still, like, I don't know if they're going to be better than the Knicks or... I don't know the the Sixers or some the Raptors even. I mean, I don't know. Like maybe they are, maybe yeah, they aren't. Ask, but I was gonna, it's I hard. I was gonna ask you to rap to rank like Raptors, Bulls, and and Brooklyn. Bulls at the bottom of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're just in the mix. But I I I would be pretty surprised if they got to six. I mean, this this team was on a thirty five win pace after the All Star break. If you just look at kind of their net rating post All Star break. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Lucas, what do you think? Do you think they can they can be the six seed, five six seed, or do you think it's more of a play in season? I mean, I think earlier in the summer I was a bit lower, and recently I, I've kind of been obviously not too unrealistically, but hyping myself up a little bit more in terms of the high end outcome of this roster. I think one, there's going to have to be. Uh, they can't. They can't mess around when they play the bottom of the East because they want. They want to make the playoffs. They want to. They want to. For sure, they want to make the playoffs. Um, and they would be disappointed if they weren't at least hosting a play-in game. They probably have their sights ha- set higher than that. But I think that they need something from Ben. So already you're on a okay. That's a pretty big if. Uh, they need some of the secondary signings like they need one of dennis smith and lonnie walker to pop this year they both had other offers they're both on veteran minimums that signals to me kind of an open secret they're they're promised some playing time so they better contribute something um and i think one of the sneaky things that they absolutely cannot let happen this year is letting claxton walk 
If you get the sense that he's going to walk, you got to trade him at the trade deadline. And that's going to be a tough pill to swallow, but that would be a pretty poor management of assets for a guy that's going to be coveted around the league in a walk here. But I see the path, I think, because you never know what Eastern Conference teams are going to have an injury or, or do worse than expected. I could see them hosting a playoff, a play-in game. I could see a 7-8 seed. Um, I don't think they're going to be better than the Knicks. The Knicks, if they're going to, if the Knicks are going to run into problems, it's going to be in the playoffs because they're going to play their starters a lot. They're going to play hard, and that's a recipe for I think 45 wins. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you guys. They should be in that Raptors Bulls tier, and then best case scenario is they finish in the top of that tier and they hover around the six seven you know, spot. Maybe Indiana is also in there if you're if you're high on it coming together, I guess, in the first year, which I could totally see. So well, I agree. Just, I mean, just ask one, yeah. Let me ask one last thing. Scale one to ten, because we've kind of talked around him a little bit, and he's, you brought him up at the top, Lucas. Just give me a scale of one to ten, how confident you are Ben Simmons gives you something positive this season. Oh, I think a five. I mean, it's tough. It's tough. I think – the bare minimum, it's like the Nets really need his theoretical skill set. So I could see him not being great, but still being a plus for this Nets roster, if that makes sense. I think the threshold is low. Um, I could, It's a better situation. He's kind of talked around how it was hard for him to play with KD and Kyrie. So I'll say, I'll say I'm perfectly average on it. Maybe a six, you know, maybe gun to head. I think he gives them a little something. If 10 is like, okay, I think he's going to be close to all-star level, I don't think that's happening. I also don't think he's going to be absolutely nothing. Remember last November, there was a two-week stretch where he averaged 16, 7, and 6 in 32 minutes a game, and then he retweaked the knee, and that was it. But there were some signs last year. So I will not be shocked if he's a semi-productive player. Our uh, partnerships guy, Chris Longo, is going to just – Listen to this multiple times to get hyped 15. up before the season. He is a uh, he is a Nets fan. Um, he's gonna say fifteen, and then after the first game where Simmons like refused to shoot a layup or something, he's gonna walk <laughs> into the Hudson River. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, yeah, I I want them. I would rather them uh, on the Simmons note play. If if they're committed to giving Simmons minutes, then they should also be committed to giving Dayron Sharp minutes. I don't like Ben Simmons at center. I've never liked Ben Simmons at center dating back to Philly. He can't protect the rim. He doesn't play like drop and all these types of big man defense in switching everything with their lack of non-guard size. Like they don't have those fours like we were talking about or, or big forwards. It, it's it's a recipe. I think it puts him in a bad spot. So I think that would be a key too. But I have the under. So uh, I feel yeah. bad about that a little bit. I just think they, I don't see a lot of difference making additions in the offseason. Again, they were a 35 win team after the all-star break in terms of net rating. And I'm glad you guys hit it. There's the possibility that they get less talented over the course of the season. Does Royce O'Neal get traded? Does Nick Claxton, worst case scenario, I think that would be a failure too. I don't expect that. Could happen. Spencer Dinwiddie, probably not because he's kind of their only guard. But again, if it really goes downhill and you're, you know, this, there is a version of this season for them where they kind of intentionally tank the end of the year, you know? So it's like, if you're just, if you're just looking at it, like purely analytically and like from a betters perspective or whatever, like that downside exists in a way that I don't think the top, top, top upside of this being like a 50 win team really exists. So most often I think this team hits the under. What do you got, Chris? 
under as well. 37 win level night rating after the Duran trade specifically. Um, after the day that Duran trade was announced, according to, to clean the glass. And again, you said 35 after the All-Star break. Like it's it's not. Yeah, I don't think I said is... the, the line is 37 and a half. I don't think I said that. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's the number. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I'm, I would take the under as well. I think this team is going to have some interesting stuff. There's a lot of guys I really like watching. I think the quality just isn't totally there for them to, to win more than, like, if they cap out at, like, 41 wins, that, that would make sense to me. If that's, like, their best case, that, that kind of would make sense to me. But I would lead the under as well. Yeah, I think I was – it's a really tough line. I think I was anticipating it to be, like, 39 and a half maybe. I don't know why. But – I ha- I'm leaning the over just because I think – I guess I'm a, I'm a sucker for, I believe, okay, they have a training camp. They're not just thrown together on the fly. That's going to make some sort of difference. The fact that they were 15th in defense with none of that needs me to think a top 10 defense is at least somewhat realistic. Like, I do expect this to be a good defense. And I just – I don't know. You know, I, I really go back and forth. I'm going to lean the over. Um but I could see I – I would very much not be surprised by the under in just that I could see the offseason signings not really making much of a difference. Um, and, again, one injury, I think, kind of cements the under, one big injury. But I willing the over. I think I just kind of believe in the defense and enough nights where the three-pointers go in um, to grant them some easier wins because I am worried about specifically the clutch time offense when the game slows down. So if their record is really bad in clutch time situations, they're not going to be able to survive that. I think my final prediction would be like 39 wins, which is why I don't feel super comfortable about taking the over. But I'm going to take it, and I can see how I'm going to – I could be wrong. All right. Well, it's Andrew Lucas. Thank you so much for coming on, talking about the Brooklyn Nets with us. Uh, for for their sake, I hope Ben Simmons. Uh, they, they are as opt- I hope the Ben Simmons thing at least works out as a five out of ten. That would I think be that would be good for him and, and good for the team. Yeah, you and you and me both. I'm not as optimistic as you. We'll talk to you guys on the next episode of the Just Basketball Show.